This morning's reading is from um, Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 35 to chapter 19, verse 9. And it's on page 1053 of the Pew Bibles, if you would like to follow that. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be with you. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me. Um, uh, all those years ago, after, after that year out, I went to university in Durham, and, um, and one of my friends, one of my best friends, uh, met up with Lee a couple of times in London, uh, and Lee was working for Channel 4 at the time. And one day at uni, I got this parcel, and it was, um, you know, like a baseball cap, but without a peak, a peakless cap that said Channel 4 on it. And um, my friend said, oh, Lee's sent you this cap. It's a, it's a peakless cap. Apparently, it's going to be the next big fashion craze. They're really big in America. 
For three years, I wore that peakless cap. And people used to say, what's that? And I'd say, oh, it's a peakless cap. They're really big in America. It's... Hmm. Um, um, I, I live in uh, Nottingham, just live near Sherwood, uh, and a few years ago, I'm, I'm completely blind, I can't see anything, and um, a few years ago, I was living in Woodthorpe with some friends, and one Sunday afternoon, there was a knock at the door, and I went to answer the door, and, um, and I opened it, and, and no one said anything, and it was really odd, and I said, hello, and there was, there was nothing, and I could kind of sense there was someone there, but they just didn't say anything, so after a few moments of like feeling a bit weird and embarrassed and wondering what was going on. I went back in and I said, I'm sure there's someone there, but they're not saying anything. So my friend went, um, Jess went and um, a few minutes later came back and she was just like killing herself laughing. She couldn't stop laughing. And um, what it was, the guy was a door-to-door salesman and he was holding a sign that said, I am profoundly deaf. And... <laughs> It's like the world's most unlucky door-to-door salesman. <laughs> but in that situation, we were totally at a loss. Like, we were hopeless and helpless. Just couldn't, couldn't get out of that situation. And um, I don't know about you, but sometimes when you hear the news, and when you watch the news on the TV, you read the newspapers, and you hear about what's going on in the world, you can have that sense of hopelessness and feel helpless. There's just nothing we can do. Like, what can we really do to make a difference? Well, just over 70 years ago, the British Council of Churches got together, uh, all the major denominations in this country, and, and, and decided that they couldn't just have that attitude. There was a refugee crisis in Europe following the Second World War, and they decided they were going to do something about it, and they set up an organization to deal with that crisis. And now, 70 years later, that organization, which is now called Christian Aid, is one of the five major international development organizations in the country. They decided they couldn't just talk about God loving people. They needed to demonstrate it. And Christian Aid continues to work to the mandate of eradicating poverty around the world. We work in about 40 countries in Africa, in South America, in the Middle East and Asia, working to eradicate poverty. And I think it's exciting that something that the church set up, something that Christians were passionate to to do something about is now one of the leading organizations in that particular field in the country with a trusted track record amongst government and amongst others in the development sector. And you are part of that story. And I want to, I want to start this morning by thanking you for anything you've ever done to support us in our work, whether you've given, raised money, gone house to house, set up a direct debit, um, remembered us in your will, Uh, participated in a campaign, prayed a prayer, whatever you've done, we're so grateful because it's enabled us and it continues to enable us to do what we do around the the world. And as a church, your contribution is very significant. And again, I want to thank you as a church because this church raises more money during Christian Aid Week than any other church in the East Midlands. I should have researched and found out where you kind of come on a national scale because I'm sure you'd be up there but certainly from the the counties that we cover in our office in Loughborough you raise the most of any church during Christian Aid Week so thank you so much. I hope that in what I share this morning it might encourage you in terms of the work that we do and the money that you've given and I hope it might inspire you to continue 
uh, to partner with us. And uh, maybe for some of you, it might inspire you to get even more involved. Just to give you a few uh, cold, hard facts, uh, Andrew Barker, who I saw very briefly this morning, who used to do the kind of job that I do, and I always uh, say that I try and emulate what, what he did. I'm sort of like a pale imitation uh, in many ways. But um, he always tells me to, to tell people exactly how we spend our money. So in uh, obedience to Andrew Barker, let me do that. Um, we, we, uh, our income is about 100 million each year. And the way that that breaks down in terms of how we spend that, we spend uh, about 14%. So if you think about a pound, if you give a pound to Christian Aid, we spend about 14 pence on raising the next pound. Uh, so, so people like me and others and our publicity and all that kind of stuff, it's about 14%. Uh, between half a P and, um, and a penny is spent on auditing our books and making sure that everything is balanced, which means that about 84 pence uh, goes to, um, I'm just checking my maths is right, I'm really bad at maths, that's right, isn't it? About 84p goes directly to our work around the world. Now, 28 pence of that, of that 84 is spent on recruiting the partners with whom we work and then monitoring and evaluating their work. And then 56 pence is spent on the actual projects. It's really important that we recruit the right people and we monitor and evaluate what they do because unlike other agencies, we don't have hundreds of staff around the world. And I'll talk a little bit more uh, about this and why why we work in this particular way, but we work through local partners. The actual work is delivered by local organizations. Uh, and so recruiting the right ones and then monitoring them and evaluating their work to ensure that they're doing what they should be doing is really vital. So that's how it how it breaks down. Our mandate is to eradicate poverty and we do that in three main ways. We provide aid in emergency situations we do long-term development work, and we challenge the third area, we, we call it advocacy. We challenge the structures and systems that cause people to be in poverty and keep people in poverty. We, we raise our voices with those people living in the poorest places in the world. And I want to talk about those three areas with reference to that passage we heard from uh, Luke's Gospel. And, and to begin with, if we think about aid and development, we think about um, Jesus' encounter with that blind man. And what's most interesting to me in that story is the question that Jesus asked when he says, what would you like me to do for you? And you might think that's quite an arbitrary question. And, and it was only this week when I was chatting to my colleague Martin about coming to speak here that, that he talked to me about this particular passage. And it just came alive in a, in a really different way um, than I've ever read it before. Jesus says to the man, what would you like me to do for you? I might think that's a, a really arbitrary question. The people who were with Jesus at the time might have been thinking, well, it's obvious, Jesus, he's blind, he wants his sight. But actually, uh, speaking as a blind man, for years and years I've been to services and conferences and celebrations and missions and all kinds of um, church events. And often people have come up to me and they've wanted to pray for me. And I'm sure that their intentions are very sincere, but often they'll come up and say, oh, hi, can I pray for you? And there's not really time to go into it in lots of detail. I could talk about this for a long time. But 
this actually can be quite a dehumanizing experience because they're not actually really interested in me. The only reason they're speaking to me is because I'm blind. Often they don't ask me my name. Um, they don't ask me who I am or where I'm from or what I do or, or anything like that. They just want to pray for healing. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't presuppose what the man wants. He speaks to him with dignity and respect. He speaks to him as a human being, as someone who is, um, has inherent worth being made in the image of God. There's also a power transfer, if you think about it. Jesus is giving power over to this man. He's saying, okay, you call the shots. It's your, it's your decision. What do you want to happen? We'll go with that. He gives power to the man. He empowers him. And that is the way that we seek to work when we're working with the poorest people in the poorest communities around the world. We seek to empower them. So when it comes to providing aid or doing development work, we work with those communities and first of all, gather them together. So community workshops, consultations, bringing together the poorest of the poor, who are often women and young people, they are most marginalized in those communities. And we seek to hear and understand what the issues are. What are the problems in this community? And then we work with them to identify solutions to those problems. And then those solutions, that work is done by our local partners. And again, we work through those local partners, as I mentioned earlier, because it's about empowering people. Because we believe that the people who are best placed to know what's going to work, what's going to be sustainable in a particular country or culture or context are the people who live there. It's all about empowering them. It's about recognizing them as people made in the image of God, which means, yes, they are deserving of all the basic human rights that we take for granted, like food and shelter and education and a safe place to live. But it also means that they have a right to determine how they live their lives and to make decisions about their lives. And, and you'll see this reflected in, in throughout our work, in our, our development work. I'm going to talk in a little bit about uh, some of the projects that you have, uh, you may remember, that we've highlighted during Christian Aid Week and what's happened um, since uh, we highlighted those projects. But, for example, this year we were talking about uh, houses being rebuilt in Haiti following the, the um, hurricane a few years ago. And we talked about Marcelin, um, who together with his daughters had a house uh, built. It was the community who identified Marcelin as being one of the most needy people who needed a house. It was the community who literally decided where the house was to be built. And it was the community who actually built the house because they were trained in masonry so they could do that. You also see this reflected in our aid work. Increasingly, when there's a disaster, we don't respond by handing out um, uh, clothing or kits for shelter or cooking. Instead, we give people cash, literally hand out cash. That does two things. One is treating people with dignity so that they can decide how they spend that money, what they need um, most in that situation. And it also provides a cash injection um, to that local economy at a time when it needs it the most. However effective our aid work is and our, and our development work, 
we're not going to eradicate poverty, which is what we're all about, unless we tackle the root causes of poverty. And so this is what we talk about, this is what we mean when we talk about our advocacy work, challenging government and business and anyone who's in a seat of power who has the decision-making authority, the power to make a difference. And again, the way that we do that is really important. So after encountering uh, the blind beggar, Jesus encounters Zacchaeus. And as it says in the passage, he's wealthy, he's powerful, and he has his position of, uh, you know, he has this, this powerful position because of injustice, because he's part of a corrupt system. He's exploiting people. And when Jesus meets him in this very public space, he could have humiliated him. Think of the things that Jesus could have said, could have really brought him down low. But instead, he reaches out with such generosity and graciousness, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to come to your house for dinner. And just in, in that act of generosity and grace, Zacchaeus is changed, and he repents. And so in the way that we challenge people in positions of power, we're seeking to build relationships with them, whether it's the government with our advocacy team building relationship with them in London, whether it's local volunteer lobbyists building relationships with their local MPs. We are looking to build relationships and see where we can go on a journey together. When it comes to challenging uh, business practice, we don't seek to demonize particular corporations. And when we do name names, we're looking to provide opportunities where they can be part of making the world a fairer place. It's about relationship. It's about partnership. It's about opportunities to move forward together. It's good. It's good because we're seeking to emulate Jesus in what we do. But it's also really effective. And so I just wanted to share with you uh, what's been going on with some of those individuals and projects that we featured Uh, in the last couple of years, just to give you an idea, because I know sometimes you give money to an organization like Christian Aid, and then you you just think, well, I wonder what impact that has had. And there are all kinds of stories that I could tell you. um, But just to focus on Christian Aid Week from the last few years, and I think there's some pictures will appear on a screen. It's always a bit, I always find it quite weird when a blind person is sort of showing pictures and just trusting that something vaguely relevant to what I'm talking about is appearing. Um, Last year, you may remember we talked about um, people living on um, these silt islands in rivers in Bangladesh. So you can see a picture of uh, the flooding there. And the next slide, there's a picture of Morsheda, who was uh, one of the people we we, uh, talked about. Morsheda, who uh, farmed jute and chilies and something around 74 pence a day. And if you look at the next slide, a house was regularly flooded. At one point, her and her three children were actually um, sort of washed, literally washed off an island and washed down the river. And then if we see the next slide, uh, this is Morsheda with her new house. She's one of many, many people who benefited from a house rebuilding, from a, a scheme that raised the level of people's houses. And Morsheda, she's now on a different uh, island, a char, that she was on before, and she survived the floods. If you go on to the next slide, you see Marcelin and his daughters from this year, who mentioned earlier, in Haiti. And the next slide shows them now outside their house. 
country manager, Prospery Raymond, is there giving the keys to Marcelin. And um, he was with us earlier this year, and he spent a day in Nottingham. And uh, I'll never forget, he said that when he first met Marcelin, he said, you looked in his eyes and it, it, they were just dead. It was just like all hope had gone. He said that when he gave him the keys to his house, Marcelin hosted a 12-hour party for the whole community. And, um, and Prosper said he taught him some new dance moves, which he was unwilling to share. But I just think that's one of the most powerful, you know, we talk about, and I can talk about statistics and, you know, numbers of people impacted by projects. But when you talk about a man who goes from having dead, you know, death in his eyes, all hope gone from, from his eyes to a man who's thrown a 12-hour party, that, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about changing lives. Some of the other stories, um, three years ago, we talked about the refugee crisis in Europe, and we featured a family uh, from Afghanistan, Nezhabar, with the, um, with the mother. Unfortunately, we lost touch with them. I guess that's the reality of people living in that situation, that sort of slightly chaotic lifestyle. They were in a, a refugee camp in Greece, so we can't update you on what's happened with them. But what I can tell you is that we um, did all kinds of things, particularly in Greece and Serbia, in refugee camps. In Greece, for example, one of the things that we did was provide um, new kitchen facilities. And through our work, just under 63,000 people benefited from food assistance. Um, and then four years ago, just finally, we, we uh, talked about uh, two ladies, I don't know if you remember this, Adi and Loco in Ethiopia. And we talked about uh, a project that was looking to provide them as the poorest of the poor in their community with livestock. And it's very much along the lines that I've been talking about in terms of working with the community over a period of time, helping them to identify what the problems are, and then coming up with solutions. So Adi and Loco were given cows, both given one cow each and a number of goats. And since then, they've, um, they've had more goats, so they've bred the goats and had more goats. They've um, been involved in a, uh, a kind of savings scheme where when people fall on hard times, they can, can share that money around. Two years ago, you might remember, there was a food crisis in East Africa. We, we launched an appeal about that. But both Loco and Adi did really well during that time because of the livestock that they had, because of the money they were able to save. And they've both been able to send their children to school as well, which is obviously a huge step forward for them and for their children and in terms of hope for the future it's really massive they're, they're just a couple of examples we work at the moment is about five or six hundred projects around the world and and like i said at the start you're you're part of this story in what you give joining in our campaigns praying prayers you're part of this story so thank you so much thank you for all that you've done and i i hope and pray they would continue to partner with us. If you have further questions about our work, I'll be around afterwards. Be really happy um, to chat to you to answer any questions, however awkward or difficult um, they may be. If you'd like to get more involved, there's loads of different things that you could do. So if you're interested in finding out more, then I'd be really happy to speak to you. Thinking about all this on a, on a very global scale, but I just wonder in closing as well whether there are things that we can uh, take from this in our own lives. I wonder if we could think about emulating Jesus and the encounters we have with people uh, today and tomorrow into this week.
thinking about how Jesus so generously and graciously interacted with people on, you know, two very different people, very different standings, the beggar and Zacchaeus. Jesus, of course, is is fulfilling Mary's prophetic song right at the start of the gospel where she, in the Magnificat, talked about the lowly being raised up and the powerful being brought down low. But how gracious and how loving Jesus is in the way that he does that. And then the final thing to say really is just that thing that we we constantly need to be reminded of, that Jesus speaks to you and me like he speaks to that blind beggar. When he says, what what can I do for you? And, and so often we come to him, don't we, with all kinds of expectations that we've placed on ourselves, all kinds of things that we think he expects of us. And sometimes we can get waylaid with all of those things. Sometimes we can maybe feel like we're just a cog in a wheel rather than a, a, a wonderfully made human being with dignity and beauty. And I just wonder if, This morning, again, each of us could hear those words from Jesus that we are loved and that we are precious and that genuinely he says to us, what can I do for you? What can I do for you?